Ah, how are you? Anybody awake in here? Yeah, that's a few. Good to see you. Uh, we are going to dive in. We have a massive chunk of scripture that we're going to cover tonight. I don't know who divided this book up. I'll blame somebody else. Uh, we've got about three messages to get in in the next uh, two hours. So here we go. Uh, welcome to those of you joining us over in Mission and East Campus. Great to see you guys through the camera. Please stay awake. Uh, we are diving into uh, the next chunk in the Gospel of John. And I just really want to encourage you from week to week, uh, bring your Bibles with you. Uh, today, we're going to read it in its entirety. But because of the length of it, we're not going to be going back verse by verse, and you would benefit so much from having your Bibles in front of you. I will refer to verses here, there, and everywhere, and it's so good for you to carry your Bibles, look at them, read along, so just that word of encouragement to you. So uh, I'm going to start this way by asking you the question, have you ever, ever been in a relationship uh, where you discovered something about somebody that you did not see coming, uh, something about their life, maybe a previous life that they had lived, or their interests, or their whatever, and you're like, wow, I would have never guessed that about you. I would have had no clue that that was in your life. Uh, so we had one of those experiences in the last couple years uh, that I want to tell you about. Uh, two, three years ago, or three or four years ago, whatever it was, we were looking for a campus pastor to come and lead a new venture down in Central Abbey. And so, of course, the, uh, the, the word went out and people put in applications. And we got into an interview process with a, a young guy named Joshua. And uh, we went through the whole process. We interviewed. We listened to some of his sermons from the previous church where he was serving. He went through a theological exam like all our pastors do, various interviews. And long story short, we signed a letter of employment. Uh, he came on. He joined our staff. And he began his ministry and really enjoyed getting to know this young man. And then a few months after his employment, somebody forwarded me a video about Joshua's previous life and said, you should probably see this and I want you to see this as well. So 15 seconds of Joshua's previous life. So just watch this. Uh, yeah, all right, there you go. Yes. I had to say I did not see that coming. Uh, not at all. Uh, so this guy is a great preacher. We knew that. He, he loves the word. We knew that. He loves the church. He loves the people of God. We knew all those things, but I did not know the kid could dance, and he's got moves. I am still trying to fit together these words in the same sentence, Bible school, dance troupe, and Mennonite brethren pastor. I don't think you can put those all in the same sentence, but anyway, it works for Joshua. Why did I say that? Because the text we're in, John chapter 12, is a text where you might say, I didn't see that coming. We're going to see a side to Jesus' life that is, uh, up until this point in time, largely out of character for Jesus. We're going to see a different side of him in this hinge point in this book. So we're in the dividing point between the first 11 chapters, the first three years of his public ministry, and now headed into the final week of his life, the last seven days of his earthly life, and the Passion Week. And there is this hinge that happens in John's chapter 12. And in this text, Jesus is basically saying, this is the day that my plan of salvation starts to unfold in a major way. Now you will know, of course, that the plan of salvation actually started in eternity past. 
Uh, the scriptures tell us this, that God the Father in his sovereign plan before the foundations of the world already had the plan of salvation fully worked out in his mind. The one who knows the beginning to the end, the Alpha and Omega, who was there in eternity past and eternity future. We also know that, of course, Jesus was already living out that plan of salvation in his 30 years of public ministry, of course. But up till this point in time, Jesus comes across almost elusive or evasive, if you will, in his ministry. The moment that he was beginning to gain any little bit of notoriety, any acclaim, any popularity up and to the right in the polls, he would do something to shut it down, if you will. Uh, Mark's gospel starts with an interesting story in the first chapter that there's a village where Jesus goes and we're literally told the entire city comes out to see him. Literally, the entire city. He's healing those who are sick. Uh, the next morning, the disciples wake up and they can't find Jesus. Where is he? Peter eventually finds him out of town in some quote-unquote desolate spot. And you can almost hear the irritation in Peter's voice when he's like, Jesus, what are you doing? Jesus, where have you gone? Everyone is looking for you, Jesus. And then imagine the conversation like, Jesus, was last night not awesome? The whole city turned up. It's the largest crowd we have ever had. Jesus, we're onto something here. It is up and to the right. You are soaring in the poles. And then Jesus is like, great, let's go somewhere else. That's his response. There's other villages I need to preach in. John's gospel is no different. All the way through this book, Jesus seems to try to hide his identity or at least to keep it quiet on the down low. So chapter two, the wedding at Cana and his mother says, can you turn some water into wine or not that much? She's like, can you get some wine? And he's like, woman, my hour has not yet come. In John 4, he's speaking to the woman at the well, and he says, there's going to day, uh, a day is coming when we will worship in spirit and in truth. An hour is coming, implying that the hour is not yet here, but an hour is coming. In John 5, he says, an hour is coming when the dead will hear my voice and they will live. Literally, the spiritually dead will be called into spiritual life. And one day in the resurrection, the physically dead will be called to physical life. The hour is coming, future. Uh, John chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 and then he runs away. They wanted to make him king, it says, and so he exits stage right. Uh, chapter 7, the crowd is debating this has to be the Christ. It has to be the Messiah. And the Pharisees want to arrest him. But the text says they can't lay a hand on him because, quote unquote, his hour has not yet come. John 8, rinse and repeat. He's teaching in the temple. The Pharisees are ticked off. They want to stone him, but we're told he escapes their grasp because his hour has not yet come. All the way through this book, we're seeing and hearing it. Not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. And then we get to John chapter 12, verse 23. And the lightning strikes and a thunderbolt claps. The hour has come, Jesus says, for the Son of Man is going to be glorified. And it's like, boom, a bomb goes off in the room. In other words, he is saying, get ready for it, boys. The Son of Man is about to be glorified. The King is in the room. The day of salvation 
has arrived and a dividing line is going to be drawn by the end of this weekend. A dividing line is going to be drawn down the middle of literally human history before and after my life, down the middle of nations, down the middle of families. It will divide husbands and wives, parents and children, and literally down the middle of a human heart. It will divide like the between the joint and the marrow. The word of God is going to come alive and this dividing line is happening this week. And in this text, we see this long, rich text, and it hammers away at this one thought that today is the day of salvation. It's a long chunk. Uh, There's so much here. Uh, There's a lot we're going to leave on the table. It is an incredibly rich spiritual buffet for our souls. But what this text tells us, if we were to summarize it, In just a few key thoughts, we could summarize this text that Jesus is the king of Israel, he's the king of the world, and he's the king of the nations. That he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the son of David, and he is the son of man. That he has been and he will be glorified, he has been and he will be exalted, and that what we do with his life and his death determines our own life and death. And so we're going to read it in three chunks, and we're going to look at these four things. His grand entrance. We are going to spend most of our time on the prophetically packed praise that we hear from the lips of these people. We will speak of his painful path to glory. And then at the end, we will touch on this time-sensitive invitation. So let's read the first chunk of it. The next day, verse 12, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it's written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Okay, just a few comments on the grand entry. What we see in this grand entry are several things. First of all, that this parade did not just happen, but Jesus actually planned it. He orchestrated it. He doesn't just walk into town as he had done on so many previous occasions. This time he gets a ride, find me a donkey, I'm riding into town. He doesn't do his typical hide from the crowd routine. In fact, he does the exact opposite. Instead of hiding or instead of, as he did at other feasts, sneaking into town on the second or the third day quietly, he picks the busiest week of the year when the largest crowds possible will be in Jerusalem. Now, just press pause there for a moment and ask the question, the next day the large crowds that had come to the feast, pause, the feast, which one is it? It is the feast of Passover. So I need to ask you the question, how much do you know about Passover? If you pulled out a sheet of paper and you said, I will write down everything that I know in my head that I've been taught, that I've learned from the scriptures about the Passover, how much do you know about that event? Because it is absolutely central to this text. 
You need to understand, if you don't know what the Passover is, go back and read Exodus chapter 12, the story of the children of Israel in Egypt. There have been nine terrible plagues, and the tenth, the worst one of all, every firstborn child in the nation will die in one night, but I will pass over you if you put blood on the doors and the lintel of your household. The Passover, and then read it through, the seven feasts of the year. What do we know? Well, they had gathered for this feast. Josephus, the uh, Roman historian, Jewish historian, tells us that there were upwards to two and a half million people would descend on Jerusalem for Passover. Jesus intentionally picks one of the largest crowds, the busiest day of the year, to reveal himself. This is a Jesus we have not seen before, didn't see it coming. He doesn't try to keep them quiet, as he has done previously, He openly receives their praise. In fact, we might even say of Jesus that he intentionally pokes the bear, if you will. So Luke's gospel records it this way, that the Pharisees came to him, Luke 19, and they say to him, teacher, would you please rebuke your disciples? The words that they are saying to you, Jesus, should only be said of God Almighty, would you tell these people to shut up? And he answers them, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. I'm not asking them to be quiet. It's a grand entrance, is it not? So this is Jesus announcing himself. This is Jesus stepping up with a megaphone and going, my name is Jesus of Nazareth, and I'm here today to announce that I am running for the office of Savior of the world. That's what he's doing. He's announcing his candidacy. Their praise is absolutely packed prophetically. We don't have time to go down all the rabbit trails, but you're going to come with me on a few of them whether you like it or not. We're going to spend most of our time here. The words and the context and the history make it so incredibly rich. Now, I did just say that word history. I get it. And already the eyes are glazing. But I beg of you, okay, if you're under two years old or you're over 100 years old, I give you permission to take a nap. But the rest of you, sit up, listen up, buckle up. This stuff matters. So they wave the palm branches. What is that it? What is that about? It's the ancient version of rolling out the red carpet. So today in our day, an important person comes into town. We literally roll out the carpet. So I guess the soles of their feet don't have to touch the dirty soil of our city. The same in that day, they rolled out the green carpet. They laid down the palm branches to create a pathway for this dignitary. But there is also a historic echo that is happening here that would have been well in the minds of these people, a 200-year-old reminiscence of another victory parade that was very, very important to them. Going back to B.C. 160, when a man named Judah Maccabeus, or Judas Maccabeus, when Greece was ruling... And Greece desecrates the temple of Israel by filling it full of the gods and goddesses of the Greek pantheon. And God raises up a military leader, a strong, mighty man. As you read about his story, uh, in our day, he must have been a bodybuilder. He must have been a military man. His nickname literally was the Hammer. He was Thor. He rallies the troops, they revolt against Greece, they kick them out of Jerusalem, they take over the city, they purify the temple, they restore worship, and then there's this massive victory parade as Judas Maccabeus rides into town on a stallion and they lay down the palms and it becomes part of their memory, it becomes part of their history. And I think the people are going out to meet another ruler and they bring their palm branches with them. 
But more important, however, are the words that they shout out. Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now that word Hosanna is a Hebrew word. It's not an English word. It's not a Greek word. When you say the word Hosanna, you are literally saying a Hebrew word. Go to your Bible dictionary and you'll look it up. Hosanna. Praise to the Lord. It is salvation belongs to the Lord if it is translated. And so some of the passages, Psalm 118, say, save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That save us is the Hosanna. Save us, Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, Psalm 118. Why did they choose that psalm? Well, remind yourself. The Jewish calendar, seven feasts and festivals, and a God-fearing male Jew was required to come to Jerusalem three times a year. How could you afford to do that? How could you take three weeks off of work, miss work, travel, all of the cost, all the expense of that festival? Well, set aside a tithe of your income, put it in a savings account so that three times a year you are able to travel to these parties. And when you travel, we've given you the songs to sing along the way, the songs of ascent. So Psalm 120 to 115 were the chorus books that they had memorized and sang as they traveled to Jerusalem. When they got to Jerusalem, there were six other songs that they sang. They were called the Hallel Psalms, uh, the song of praise, Psalm 113 to 118. Why do I tell you this? I'm telling you this because Psalm 118 was on their Spotify playlist. They were already listening to this. Their children had memorized it, just like we do. We sing so much great theology to music, and I know this happens to you, that unbeknownst to yourself, you find yourself humming a tune midweek, right? And the words that you've memorized start coming back in your mind, and you're like, oh my goodness, I have memorized so much great theology because we put it to music the same as this. Even their children knew the words to these songs. They probably had already been singing Psalm 118. The context of Psalm 18 is perfect, is, is important. Out of my distress, I call to the Lord. The nations have surrounded us on every side, Lord. They're pushing us so hard and we find our back up against the wall. But remember, my soul, that the Lord is my strength and my song and my salvation. And then it goes on to say this, Psalm 118, beginning at verse 21. I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Does that sound familiar? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Hosanna, save us now, God. What day is it? This is the day. That is not for your coffee mug. It is not for your t-shirt. It is not for your poster. It is not for a happy, clappy tune. This is the day the Lord has made. No, it's capital D-A-Y. This is the day. This is the day of salvation. The day when we recognize and we realize that stone that we tripped over, that stone that we rejected is literally the cornerstone. And later we find out the capstone. He is the beginning and the end of our salvation. It is all in him. This is the day and it is marvelous in our eyes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hosanna. That's what they sang. Psalm 118. Woo! And we don't do that, but they did it. I'm sure they did. In my distress, I cried out. But a king on a donkey? That makes no sense. A king who was coming in as a ruler 
would come on a chariot or would come on the back of a white stallion. He would come in as a conqueror with power. But a king coming humble on a donkey is the king who says, I'm not coming to conquer, I am coming in peace. And they might have wondered until they remembered that Zechariah told them that this is how it was going to happen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Zechariah 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, colt, the foal of a donkey, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. And oh my doctor, there is so much here. I wish we could go down all these rabbit trails. You've just got to say that what they just quoted right there, his rule shall be from sea to sea, is Psalm 72 verse 8. And just a sidebar here, did you know that that is the motto of Canada? Did you know that this is our official scripture of Canada that he will have? Did you know that it is inscribed in stone on the arch of the peace arch of our parliament buildings in Ottawa? And unless somebody takes a sandblaster and blasts it off, it is there for everybody to see. May King Jesus have dominion from sea to sea. Praise God. Amen. That's the context. And he's going to come in riding humble on the back of a donkey, but he will be your ruler. And there will be no end to his rule. And if we had time, there is so much more to this prophetic mashup. Uh, we might talk about it a little bit later, but there are six to eight verses here that we could refer to. Did you notice that Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. But when you see the quote in John 12, it says, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Why did they switch it out? Rejoice greatly, fear not, daughter of Zion. It's a different phrase, and it is a nod to Isaiah 40. So you remember Isaiah 40. If you were here two weekends ago, I reminded you that John the Baptist, who opened this book, was preaching a very particular message. He told us, I'm preaching a 600-year-old message. I have come to preach, according to the prophet Isaiah, exactly what Isaiah was told to preach, comfort, comfort my people, and cry out to my people three things. Cry out, not about politics, cry out about the glory of God, about the word of God, and about the power, the arm of God. Lift up those things and then say, behold your God. That was Isaiah's message. In the context there, in Isaiah 40, it says this, go up on a high mountain O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. And here it is, fear not, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, behold your God. Maybe you noticed there in verse 13 that they added something. Chapter 12, verse 13, it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. But if you go back to Psalm 18, that phrase, king of Israel, isn't there. You're like, it's blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, full stop. Where did that little phrase, the king of Israel? Well, that as well is a nod to another prophetic passage. Zephaniah chapter 3. This is a beautiful text. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, rejoice and exult. And here it is, the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. 
Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you in loud singing. If you're having trouble sleeping at night, remind yourself of Zephaniah chapter three. Is this not beautiful? The Lord sings over his children. There is a fire hydrant of Old Testament prophecy embedded in these words of praise. And all those Old Testament voices are pointing forward to the day when we cry out, the king is in the room, the king is in the room. Verse 16 tells us they didn't understand it. In that moment, they didn't get it. Later, when Jesus is glorified, then they remember all of these Old Testament things were written about him and now have been accomplished through him. But the Old Testament had promised a deliverer would come. The Old Testament said that a people walking in darkness will see a great light. The Old Testament said, unto you a child will be born and the government will be on his shoulders. And Jesus says, today I'm here to announce it. Verse 19, the Pharisees didn't understand it either. But in a cryptic moment of clearly exasperation and frustration, they also utter a prophetic word unknowingly. When they say, look at what's going on, the whole world is going after him. And the word for world there is cosmos. Literally, the cosmic realm is following after him. And we would say, thank you, dear Pharisee, for that prophetic word. It is indeed true that Jesus Christ is not just king of the Jews, not just king of the nations, but he is king of the cosmos. He is king of the creation. He is king over creation. And all creation groans in expectation, waiting to see the sons of Adam, the daughters of Eve revealed and the creation restored. And again, you have to go, woo, at least I do. Breathe, breathe, okay. Embedded here. And in all the other gospels are the amazing number of allusions to his true identity. They all point to this conclusion that Jesus is now ready to reveal his glory. He is now ready to reveal himself as king. So we've seen his grand entrance. We've seen the prophetic packed praise. But next we see the painful path. The painful path to glory. The longest chunk in the middle. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some of the Greeks and these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, 
not mine. Now is the judgment of this world, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard that the, in the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus' great reveal is triggered by this question that the Greeks bring, we want to see Jesus. What we get a hint at there is that the nations are now waking up. The nations are now identifying who he is and they are asking questions. And we don't get to know whether they actually got a personal audience with Jesus or not because John just jumps into the next conversation with Jesus saying, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. But Jesus makes it very clear it is going to be a painful path. Because just like a kernel of wheat cannot bear much fruit unless that kernel is buried in the earth, dies, rots, sprouts again, and then that shoot goes up and much fruit, the same is true, that I will not bear abundant fruit unless I die, and I will die, and if you're going to follow me, you must die too. In losing, you will gain in hating your life here, you are actually keeping your life for eternity. In bowing your head and serving, you will be exalted. And it seems counterintuitive. It goes against everything in human nature to say, I must willingly lay down my life in order to live. So before he died, I heard Tim Keller sharing a story about a, a recent death in the New England state somewhere. A guy was out on an icy river in a canoe or a raft or something. He goes over a waterfall and the boat goes downstream and there's a whirlpool where the water pool, waterfall was going into the creek below and he gets caught in those icy waters around that whirlpool. There are people on the shores. They see what's happening. It's too dangerous. They don't dive in. They call 911 and they see him swimming around that whirlpool, struggling to fight his way out, to not get sucked under. But the, the water is icy and cold and they know that hypothermia will set in. He soon is getting weaker and weaker and swimming in and out and in and out, trying to not get sucked under. And eventually he gives up and he dies. The autopsy would say he actually died of hypothermia because he was in that water too long. But what those on the shore said happened as he sucked into that whirlpool, five seconds later, his body comes up downstream. And if only he had known at the start to surrender to the whirlpool, to die to himself, he probably would have lived because he would have been spit out down below, swum to shore, wrapped the blankets around. He probably would have lived. You see, it is so counterintuitive. And quite honestly, the greatest challenge and the most painful decision for our flesh to make is I will offer this life up entirely to the Lordship of Jesus. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, have we laid our lives down? Have we surrendered? Have we taken our hands off? Have we died to self? I asked you last weekend, when did you die? When did you finally reach the end of yourself where you say, I'm finished, I'm done, the mess of my life, I cannot fix it, my ways are not working, and so I will lay down my agenda and I will pick up the life of Christ. The path is costly and painful. 
It's reflected there in verse 27. Jesus says, my soul is troubled. I am not looking forward to these next few days. He knows what is ahead of him, but I have come for this very purpose. So father, would you glorify yourself? Then the father answers, I've already glorified you and I will glorify you more. When did that happen? Well, we know two specific instances in this gospel. John 1, in his incarnation, the word became flesh and we have seen his glory. The father has already been glorified in the birth of Jesus in taking on human flesh. We know he's been glorified through the miracles, the works of Jesus. Nicodemus comes to him in John chapter three. No one can do these signs unless God is with him. The father was already being glorified in Jesus' life, but now... In this final week will be the greatest display of the glory of God, and it is just around the corner when you walk out of that tomb alive. And Jesus says, in essence, a line is drawn. A line will be drawn, and we will see these four things. And so if you're looking at your Bibles, it's verse 31 and 32. These four things, a dividing line is being drawn. Number one, the judgment of the world. A line is going to be drawn at the cross. And what you do with the death of Jesus is the decisive dividing line. The final judgment is going to be based on this question, what have you done with Jesus? There is a dividing line here in that the judgment of the spirit realm is going to take place. Satan will be cast out. We know that we don't battle just against flesh and blood or human systems and structures. Ephesians 6 says it's not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. We know the story that there was a battle in heaven and that Satan was cast down. That he has operated with great power over humanity. But we also know, we studied this in the summer, Colossians 1 that in his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus accomplished something, right? In chapter one, it says he did something for us. He transferred us. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And he also did something to Satan. At the end of chapter two, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them in open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus says, judgment of the world is coming and judgment of Satan is coming. This is going to spell his defeat. Third, I will be lifted up. In two ways, I will be lifted up, exalted in praise. Habakkuk 2 tells us that the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Mark's gospel tells us that the gospel will be preached to all nations. The name of Jesus will be made much of before the end of history. But also he will be lifted up and exalted literally on a tree. John chapter 3, 14, the son of man must be lifted up like Moses lifted up the snake in the desert. John 8, he repeats it again. When I'm lifted up, you will know that I am he. And here in John 12, he explicitly says, I'm pointing to my death on the cross. I will be lifted up, referring to the kind of death he would die, the Roman crucifixion. And finally, when he is honored and when he is glorified, he will draw all people to himself. Our job is to make much of Jesus and his job is to convince them. Are you not thankful that that's how it works? 
You see, our job, like Isaiah, is to cry out about the glory of God, the word of God, the arm of God, to say, oh, dear people, behold your God. Our job is like John the Baptist to say, look, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away not only the sins of the world, but the Lamb of God who can forgive your personal sins. And his promise is, as we lift him up, he will draw people to himself. And I need to tell you this, that this is one promise that Jesus makes that keeps me going in ministry knowing that it is not on us. Amen? It is not on us. It is not on our church. It is not on you. It is not on me to twist anybody's arm, to argue them, convince them, and wrestle them into the kingdom because that is humanly an impossible task. Yet Jesus asks us to leave that work to him. Leave that work to my spirit. Be very clear, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And so what's our job? And our job is this, to make much of Jesus. To lift up the person and the work and the love and the grace and the call and the demands and the commands of Jesus. To lift up the fact that his call is a call to come and die. That his call is a call to give up all of the rights over your life. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Come and die. And to tell people all around us that Jesus is actually a very divisive presence in our lives. You see, there's a lie going on in the church today in North America. A lie that says Jesus is all just about just love everybody and be nice to everybody. Is that Jesus? Jesus calls us to a decision. Jesus calls us to a decision that will divide people. Either you are in or you are out. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot serve God and serve the world. The cross is a dividing line. It divided history. It divides nations. It divides families. It divides friendships. It divides because you you decide for him or against him. And Jesus, you want to know the road to glory? Just watch me. I'm going to die. And you want to join me on the road to glory, then you've got to be prepared to die too. They hated me, they will hate you. You will think that you're losing, but you're actually gaining. You're giving up control in the here and now, but you're saving your life for eternity. You're lowering yourself. You're becoming humble. You're becoming a servant. You're always pouring yourself out. And then you think God will exalt you. And the world says, that's crazy. That is crazy. Why do you talk like that? Nobody, you can't live like that. It is a dog-eat-dog world. If you don't stand up for yourself, if you're always humbling yourself, becoming a doormat for everybody else, you cannot live that way. And Jesus just reminds us, don't worry about the world says. Just keep lifting me up and just keep laying your life down. And I will draw all people to myself. And finally, he wraps it up. Those last two verses reminding us that time is short. He said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. It is very straightforward. The light is here for a time. And the darkness of judgment is going to fall. So make your decision while it is still light. In other words, the window of salvation is not going to stand open forever. 
There is a fine line that divides the grace and the mercy of God and a line where you cross to the wrath of God. That window does not stay open forever. And so Jesus rides into Jerusalem and he declares the hour has come. The day, capital D-A-Y of the Lord, has made is here. I will rejoice. What day? The day of salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And either we will align with him as king of kings and we will embrace him in his humility or we will one day meet him when he returns riding on a white stallion. That's Revelation 19. The next time Jesus rides into town, he does come as a conquering king and ruler and he is coming to judge. So this Jesus, our humble king, is also our righteous Judge, so what say ye? The great reveal has happened, and even though we might not have seen it coming, he is indeed king of the Jews, he is king of the nations, he is king of the world, and the only question is, will he be king of our lives? And I think this issue is so real for us in the North American church because this is my thought. I think that 90% plus of Christians, quote unquote, in North America, very clearly articulate that they need Jesus Christ as their savior. Absolutely 100%. I need him for the forgiveness of my sins. I cannot do it. I cannot earn my salvation. I'm so grateful that God did for me what I cannot do. I need him as my savior. The question is, is he also our Lord? Those two terms go together. They are two sides of the same coin. And I would suggest, friends, you cannot have him as your savior if you are not willing to have him as your Lord. And you say, where do you get that? Well, we're going to read on in the Gospel of John. Later, he will say, if you love me, you will obey me. So flip that around. If you don't obey me, it means you don't love me. So the question is, he not only your savior, is he your Lord? What say ye? Uh, Why don't you stand with me, Mission Campus, would you stand with us as well? Let me pray with you and for you, and the music teams will come and lead us. Father, if only we could jump in a time machine and go back to all of these great events, to be a fly on the wall and to see a million plus people in Jerusalem and how many of them came out to see you parading into town. Would we have been part of the crowd crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, knowing that just a few days later, that very same crowd would be crying, crucify him. But Lord, bring it forward to us in 2023 that you have fully revealed your glory to us. We have the vantage point of history to look back on who you are the ruling and reigning king who went through the end of the week, the death, burial, resurrection, is ascended and is seated at the Father's right hand, right now ruling and reigning. Lord, we need you as our savior. We cannot merit your forgiveness on our own. We need the grace and the mercy of Jesus. But Father, would you give us grace to do the most painful thing of all, that we would die to ourselves and that we would make you the Lord of our lives. And Father, as you are Lord, as we lay our lives down in humility, as we just continue to serve and lift up the name of Jesus, would you do what you've promised to do, that you would draw all people to yourself. We ask this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.